Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Windsor, author and book coach. Today, I'm speaking with Joanna Wolfarth. She's a cultural historian and lecturer with a PhD in Southeast Asian art history. She's also a nonfiction writer exploring cultural histories, memoir, and feminism. Her first book, Milk, An Intimate History of Breastfeeding, is a deeply compelling social, historical, and cultural exploration of breastfeeding, told through both memoir, rigorous research, and storytelling. In our conversation, Joanna talks about how the book came from a need to make sense of her experience as a new mother. She also talks about what it can mean for us when we take a very intimate experience like breastfeeding and put it within a wider social and historical context, that it can give us a new perspective on it. We also talk about writing in tiny snatches of time between caring for a baby, the fearlessness that comes along with new motherhood, and nonfiction books that open up questions rather than seek to provide all of the answers. As ever, if you enjoy the episode, please do leave a review. It really does help others to find the podcast. Enjoy the episode. Joanna, it's so lovely to have you with us today. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. I'm um oh, there's so much I'm I'm dying to ask you about milk. There's there's just so many layers of things going on in here that I can't wait to ask you about. But I wanted to start with the fact that you're a writer and a cultural historian and a lecturer and your academic research is in Southeast Asian art. Um, But I've seen you describe yourself as someone who's fascinated by how we make sense of the world through the things that we make and the stories that we tell. That was really interesting to me because it seems like that's what brings all of your disciplines together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's what kind of led me to writing the book was I was trying to make sense of this really primal, um, everyday, unremarkable experience, right? That's what we're told it is, motherhood. You know, you're not the first person to be a mom. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know how, like, where was my hook to kind of orientate myself. Mm. And it just made sense to go to objects, to look at how other people have made sense of this or who have how how have other people represented um motherhood and then write my own stories about it. Um put it into some kind of narrative form. Um yeah and it is it is what kind of brings everything together. You know, it's what is my it's 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 where my fascination with art and thinking about art history came from it was really thinking about how do we how do we make sense of our world um uh yeah yeah. and and like you say this is something that we are told um when we're heading into motherhood that this is this is very normal and it's been done for obviously all of human time (laughs) and yet what we experience and we'll talk a bit more about some of the what you write about we experience this this really strange shift and also I guess a duality of like at the on the one hand it's it's very normal and on the other hand it's completely foreign to us at the same time yeah completely um so it's you know we're we're mammals it's what we do um and like you said yeah people have been doing this forever um but it is a huge identity shift and I think however you become a parent um it's it's a massive complete life life-changing event, um, shifting event, um, if it's involving your, you know, if you are giving birth, um, if you are lactating, you know, it's involving your body as well in a, in a very, very kind of raw way. 
um, and life altering way. It's changing all of your relationships. Mm. Um, it's, you know, with your, with a partner, um, even generationally, I think Mm. I was, I was the first to, to have a, have a baby, um, sort of in my generation. So everyone shifts around in terms Mm. of where they are. Um, so it changes everything yet. It's, you know, it's also so unremarkable and every day. (laughs) So could you possibly have imagined that your first nonfiction book that you published um, was about breastfeeding when you are an art academic? <laughs> Never in a million years. Never in a million years. Um, absolutely not. Um, I, you know, I mean, and I kind of say it, I think, in a book, like, I always kind of figured if I became a parent, I wanted to breastfeed um, just because that's just how I pictured it. Um, mm. You know, I understand that it's not for everyone or, you know, formula is can be great. Um, but I never really gave it any more thought than that. Um, and even as an art historian, having seen lots of, you know, Madonna and Child and, you know, lots of other cultures that have uh, images of, of breastfeeding mothers or kind of earth goddesses or whatever, I still was never really drawn to that as, as an academic. You know, that's mm. not what, where my interest lay. So absolutely not. I never in a million years would have thought that this would be something that that I would write about or that I would spend so long researching or or that this would be where I ended up. It's um it's really interesting because it, it's such a it's such a rich topic to explore. And you explore it in in ways obviously you really lean into your expertise. Um there's um you explore through so many cultural elements, the history, but also um as you're saying, lots of depictions in art that have been around in in almost all cultures have depictions of it, presumably, Um, a lot of which you discuss in the book, including mythology and stories, um, as well as figurines and art and how how it's represented in in religion as well. Um, And so it's, it's incredibly interesting for me as someone who has breastfed both successfully and unsuccessfully, (laughs) which I think is probably quite common, um, to put my experience as a reader into a much wider context, even at the time when I was kind of, you know, breastfeeding, I I was putting myself only within the context of my generation, I think, when I was mm-hmm. thinking yeah. about it. And this is the first time I've looked at my experience in the context of human history. And so that was such an interesting experience. Did you find that personally helpful to do that? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And that's where the, that was the kind of the, the germ of the book was, um, was I, I feel like we have this tendency, like you said, to think about our, that experience of, you know, how we feed our babies, which I think for our generation has been kind of reduced down to a discussion, which is simply breast versus bottle. You know, Mm -hmm. that's how the media likes to talk about it. They like to imagine that there's two distinct tribes and we we judge each other <laughs> and you know all of that that it's it's and I, d- I found that you know that's not the reality right mm. um you know you talk about successfully breastfeeding or not I don't you know that's going to look different for everybody what you know yeah, successful my, su- feeding. I, my successful was mixed feeding so yeah, yeah that was successful right. for me yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. same with me I ended yeah. up you know mixed feeding for a while and you know all sorts um and I think that we we have we're sort of 
we're, we're kind of laboring under this illusion, which I think is kind of culturally and, and kind of politically produced that we kind of do it all in isolation, right? That mm-hmm. the decisions we make are ones that we make alone, um, that we're not being impacted by all of these other factors um, uh, that are going on, um, that we're not impacted by history in any way. And it's quite isolating, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of the onus is put on the individual rather than thinking about the bigger structures that are at play, including the historical structures. Yeah. And for me in that kind of immediate kind of postpartum period, have going through these struggles, feeling really like, um, feeling very isolated, very alone in it, um, but and, and feeling that I wasn't doing, you know, my I felt like my body was failing in in what I what what it ought to be doing, mm. and I found that kind of connecting, looking back historically, it just it just made me realize that I wasn't going through this alone, not only within my generation but historically as well. Mm. Um, so the fir- one of the first things I found were nipple shields. Um, dating from the kind of the the 19th century um and made of like tin or glass you know some are made of glass some are made of ivory that was my immediate reaction because I hated using you know the the silicon ones that we have today um and this but when I found (laughs) yeah I'm like oh thank god for technological innovation (laughs) that I'm not using tin or glass or anything um but it also made me think okay so there was women 200 years ago who were trying to mitigate problems mm. um and that was the that was the like, kind of first thread that that made me go there is a bigger history here that yeah. that we are I am now kind of a part of it's something that I find incredibly personally helpful in lots of areas of my life but I think motherhood specifically of putting myself in a wider context and understanding my own experience within a wider one um I particularly loved the chapter um that was selfless faceless lost i felt there was there was so much in there that i think i have been exploring much more in my uh, my children are now 11 and 13 um and there was so much in there um you know particularly researchers like adrian rich and this idea mm-hmm. of motherhood versus mothering which are two actually very different things and this idea of the institution of motherhood being a very fixed yes. thing and a quite a patriarchal institution and it's a very different thing to the act of mothering which can be very feminist and very empowering in and of itself and this is something that I've really come to understand a lot more in the last few years and has helped me make sense of my own experience um and also of my mother's experience somewhat as yeah. well and things like that and it's so interesting that this that this idea that we, um, when we're experiencing something that is, you know, suppo- you know, common, um, that we we think that the problems that we're experiencing are are, are contemporary problems only, and don't do not have a wider context. Yeah, absolutely, definitely, and I think that um, that yeah, a s- sort of, um, I think with motherhood, it, it is something that is such a kind of interior experience very often but it can be so empowering and I'm very interested and I'm broadly interested in in how we define power and that Mm -hmm. relates a little bit to my other kind of academic work but how do we think about power how do we think about kind of feminine power different kinds of power Mm. um how has that kind of power been been kind of squashed and diminished and I think that was one of the things I wanted to get at in the book is the ways that 
kind of, you know, different hist- historical periods, different historical geographical places, um, attempts are made to kind of diminish the the mother's role. So to to mm. not only it, it's kind of there's kind of two strands of it. One is that on the one hand, mothers are everything. We you know we are blamed for everything. We are responsible for everything. Mm. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, and and you know I'm reading. You know, you read these accounts of 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 people blaming their mothers for not feeding them properly, you know, um, uh, uh, which I can, you know, talk about in a little more, more detail. But so on the one hand, we're, we're kind of everything, we're blamed for everything. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, you know, thinking specific about breast milk, um, it's disgusting. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a horrible bodily, it can be a horrible bodily function. It's, um, it's, it's you know it's base um and so there's these kind of two strands of like we're everything and we're nothing mm-hmm. um and you can see that build over the history this kind of i think a kind of patriarchal reduction of mm-hmm. of kind of the power of the feminine and you can see that in religious iconographies as well and and how those shift um, um i was really fascinated when you talked about s- some of the nuances in that idea of power, one of which you mentioned being that when um, a black historian looked um, at, was looking in the 20th century at power within the home and how a white middle-class woman felt powerless in the home and felt trapped, um, a black American woman might have felt empowered in her home because she had more autonomy in her home than she had outside of the home. And that was such an interesting nuance to me that I feel like is often missing from the conversation, this idea of um of it's not it's not strictly one thing or the other. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, uh, kind of race and class comes into that, you know, that um we talk about the kind of the 50s housewife, right? And and kind of being stuck at home and 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 rallying against that well there was lots of women in the 50s who weren't able to be at home and maybe wanted to be at home raising Mm. their own children um and you know and baking for their own children but didn't have the choice to do that and I think I wanted to kind of pick apart some of those some of those nuances it was partly for my own thinking as well and, and partly for you know to think about to think about the nuance in every different kind of instance yeah and how there are bigger structures at play that we are kind of woven and in, embedded into. One area that you that you do a chapter on in the book, which I found so completely fascinating, I'm sure lots of people would, the wet nursing, which obviously I know about and I know is a thing, but I didn't know a huge amount about the various different logistics and trends over the you know, centuries. Um, and I mean, I knew, I knew that I knew a little bit about the kind of the French trend in the 18th century because of, um, Rousseau and his, and Emile and that backlash against it and stuff, Mm -hmm. but reading about this idea of the kind of almost factory-like level of wet nursing and, and how it was used for working class women so they could go work in factories was something that actually I had no idea about. And there's like a mass exodus of babies from working yeah. class women into the countryside because the women had to work in the factories. That is something I'd never heard about before. And mm. that's like you're saying, like the idea that, you know, c- class comes so into these ideas of breastfeeding as well. Yeah. Wet nursing offers such a such a window into the history of of feeding babies, partly because it gives us so much documentation to work with. Um, So there's kind of there's Babylonian texts, um, Egyptian texts about 
wet nursing. So contracts. Yeah, I know. So I was going to say the might... contracts. Fascinating. Of course, there were contracts. Of course, there. Yeah, be. yeah. <laughs> so there would be things like you're going to be employed to feed, you know, to feed a nurse's baby until they're two or three. You mm. must not um, have sexual relations during this time because it could sour your milk, and you'll be paid X amount. Um, and it goes in and out of fashion and and kind of uh, and 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 also I think the the um, the kind of the status given to the wet nurse changes at different times mm. as well. So are they an enslaved person? Are they somebody, you know, in Buddhist cultures, they're viewed as very selfless and very mm. respected. Um, but you're right. So yeah, in the late 18th century, you have Rousseau and, and all of those guys basically saying that mothers should be nursing their own babies, not only for the health of the babies, but for the good of the morality of mankind for the good of the whole civilization. Again, no pressure, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Rousseau. Yeah, there's a, yeah. there a lot of pressure in a meal. There's a lot of pressure. Yes, there is. But one of the other things it does is it it removes, it, it takes out a kind of budget line um, in an aristocratic household because you're not paying for the wet nurses anymore. Mm. Um, so it, it women are no longer being paid for their their like their labor um your wife does it for free so there's another kind of element to it as well um and of course Rousseau sent his babies to a foundling hospital um so you know um but but at the so at the same time that that we have this um this kind of promotion of of maternal breastfeeding of the kind of the um that kind of idealized sentimental good mother um you also yeah so aristocratic women start breastfeeding, wealthier women start breastfeeding, not all of them, but that, that's where the trend goes. But yeah, women who have to work, um, it's more economical for them to pay somebody else to feed their babies while they go out to work. So yeah, so it's, um, you know, so you do have thousands of babies being sent um, out of Paris. Um, I think it was, so in 1780, out of, I think, 21,000 babies that are born that year in Paris, only a 1,000 um, are fed by their mother. Um, the rest are fed by either wet nurses in the city or sent out. And there's a whole industry that supports yeah. this. But I mean, it didn't last for very long, but it's crazy. Completely fascinating. I just, I, I, I think it just helps to understand. It just really, really emphasizes the fact that these are cultural things. These are all cultural mm-hmm. things. Um, there is no right. There's no wrong. It's not a good. It's not a bad. It's a, this this cultural tide will continue to move back and forth across all different kinds of feeding. And I was so fascinated by you. Sort of did a slight look ahead to the future of what things might look like. There's now bio milk being developed in labs. What the knock on effects that might be, especially around employment law for women who at the moment have protected right to a year off to to breastfeed and also protected right to be able to um, express milk at work and things like that, whether or not the availability of biomilk, which we all know at the moment is definitely not going to be as good, but still going to be pretty great, but it's not going to be the same mm-hmm. as feeding um, yourself because obviously antibodies and everything. But, um, but you know, this idea that that might then have an effect on employment law and the rights that women have fought for, um, it's so completely complex. Um, and and also um, there's mention as well of 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 milk donation, but not voluntary, not just voluntary, which happens Mm -hmm. and has always happened, but for money and whether or not making it illegal is the right thing to do. If this is a really good way for women to be able to work and also raise their families at the same time. Yeah. It's so complex. And it was so 
difficult to write about mm. because, well, I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, but it was difficult because I, I really wanted to be careful that I wasn't drawing any big conclusions yeah. or, or making any kind of um, proclamations about what we should be doing better because I think all all I wanted to say at different points was there is so much that needs to change. We can't just tweak a little thing here or a little thing there. It's so complex. Um, you know, I, I write quite a lot about Louise Bourgeois and her spider mm-hmm. and things. And I think, you know, we are kind of within this web of being pulled in different directions by by different factors, all of which will be slightly unique, I think, for every different, you know, for every every person. Um but yeah, it, it is. There's so many different factors. I mean, the the example you're talking about, um, I think the um, women in Cambodia being um, employed to produce breast milk that was then uh, then sent to uh, the US. It, they were employed by a private company, and then the milk is obviously obviously kind of sold on at a much uh, much more um, sort of an inflated price. Um, and there's these questions of exploitation, and so you know. For, for a lot of those women who were employed there, they said, well, we can make a lot more money here than we would in the garment factories. Mm. We can bring our own children to this employment. We can't take our children to work in the factories. Um, but then there is the possibility of exploitation yeah. as well. And so it does become this industry that has um, that has similar that is open to similar problems than any other kind of industry under kind of global capitalism. So I kept no. coming back to this thing of there's no easy answers because no. I think under patriarchy under capitalism um it's always going to be it's always going to be really tricky to navigate yeah and it's it was it was so enjoyable to read about all of those nuances and all that complexity um especially through this very particular lens of of art which is your kind of field of expertise um and to feel that connection with women almost that connection with women throughout history um and perhaps some of those women have had different problems, but actually some of us have had very similar problems to the problems that women have always had with this incredible and very sometimes very difficult thing um, that is both intimate um, and necessary and life-giving um, and, and life-changing in lots of ways, um, but at the same time incredibly ordinary. Yes, yes. Um, but, yeah, it's such a – I wanted to kind of get at the – it's unremarkable yet so remarkable yeah. um, that we do this, um, and it's a vital it's a vital task when you have a a, a small child to look after. Um, feeding them is is kind of you know feeding them and making sure they don't fall off anything is kind yeah. of like your number one your only job um, for months. Um, yeah. And however you feed your baby, it's yeah. going to be emotional and emotive. Um, and it made me actually quite nervous to kind of write the book because I knew yeah. how much emotion is attached to this. Um, and um, But I wanted to connect. Yeah, I think art is a way of connecting back and mm. feeling that emotion and like looking at these kind of little terracotta figurines that are thousands of years old and trying to just imagine the hands that made those, mm. um, the fingers that made those. And I think trying to find women in history as well, yeah. the traces of our history. Mm. Um, which is, which you know, difficult hard to find yeah yeah and <laughs> I mean I also I loved particularly like you said you wrote quite a bit about Louise Bourgeois and I loved particularly the fact you you were able to reflect on how you perceived some of her work differently before and after the experience of giving birth and how you saw her 
um, yeah, how you saw her work and so, you know, particularly her headless sculpture um, in a in a completely different light after that experience, the kind of almost before and after um, becoming a mother. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it it made me I think a better art historian in some ways, or it definitely mm-hmm. changed how I how I look at things. I think it was the same with the ancient woman of Willendorf as well. Um, kind of everything that I'd been kind of everything I'd been told about her and what she might represent kind of just didn't feel right anymore. Yeah. But it was also it was about that kind of sense of recognition. Like, where do you find yourself? Um, how do you find yourself? Um, because as I say in the book, you know, when I was, you know, within the, you know, in the first days of new motherhood, I didn't even have a face. <laughs> I looked in the mirror and my face was gone. I was just seeing my son looking back at me. So what, yeah, where do you find yourself? And for me, it was, it was finding, like looking at these objects um, and using those as a way to, to kind of come back to myself um, that's, that's, and understand myself as changed as well. Yes. And that was so interesting because I really recognized that story. It was a really beautiful story. And you go on to talk about how you have a photograph of you with two of your close friends a few days, I think a few days or a week after your son was born. And you don't, you still look at that face that you're in that photograph of yours and you don't recognize yourself. And it's so interesting. I think so many um, people will will understand that feeling. I remember feeling for the first six weeks like someone had put me in a rocket ship when I went into labor and I'd come mm-hmm. back down to earth after I'd given birth and I'd got out and everything looked the same, but I was on a different planet. Yeah. That's how it felt. And it took about six to 12 weeks for that to kind of calm down, but it felt as if I was in an alien world. And so I just, everything looked the same, but I didn't recognize anything. It was It's a really strange thing to describe. And I didn't have depression or anything like that but it was quite a frightening feeling in a way yeah just in the same way you don't recognize yourself you know you look at everything around you and you understand that it's the same but you don't recognize it yeah it's very trippy yeah Um, it can be very very trippy trippy. and you add on to that kind of the sleep deprivation and the adrenaline as well which I was not expecting you know my child would be asleep and I could not sleep yeah because the adrenaline was just so high um so it did feel, yeah, very, very trippy. Um, yeah, I couldn't uh, eat quite for, a long time afterwards. I couldn't eat for about five days after I gave birth, mm. and that I had to force myself because obviously I knew I needed to. Yeah, but I had never. No one had told me that that might happen, and that's all adrenaline. I talked about it someone with later with a with a midwife. I think you know a few weeks later, and they're like, yes, yes, because you know adrenaline from the birth. It's really difficult to. It kills your appetite, and I was like. Why did you want to talk to me about this? It is a very I mean, a, strange experience. <laughs> and that's the thing, isn't it? You're just, you're spending your whole time going, why did no one warn me about this? Why did it's nobody like, tell me that this was going to happen or that was going to happen? Because I had a similar thing with a midwife going, kind of very like patiently explaining to me why I felt such like such various pains, yeah. uncomfortable. And it was very like, well, of course you do, dear. Yeah. <laughs> but but I just, I hadn't, you know, you just, you can't be prepared for it really. And you can't, you can't um, know everything. Yeah. You can't know everything no, beforehand. No, Ooh. you can't be prepared for the experience before. But I mean, I suppose the other, you know, the other reason I wanted to put it in a book was partly for other people who've gone through this experience, but also right from the beginning, I was like, I really hope somebody picks it up who hasn't gone through this. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. 
but but that was a that was a big conversation that I had kind of with my agent very early on was Mm. thinking about will anybody read this who has not gone through this experience yeah because people will think ugh just you know ugh don't want to read about that you know if they haven't gone through it about breast milk really and you're like I mean yes it is so it is such an incredibly rich and like just oh there's so much there's so much to dig into um and and so I can I can 100% I can 100% see and in fact even in the book you start you you write a little bit about that first inkling of the book at, when your mm. when your son was only 6 weeks old thinking I think I need to write a book about about breastfeeding about um and how it came that early and I I wanted to ask you you know those those initial thoughts were coming very early in your experience um but like, what did that, what did those next steps in the process look like? Where, how did it start to actually formulate into, um, into a proposal and an actual solid thing that you were going to commit time to? Yeah. So yeah, it did start very, very early on. And I think because I had all of those thoughts of why did nobody warn me about this? Why all the art of breastfeeding looks like this, but that's not how my breastfeeding looks. Um, and so it came very, very early and I, knew I wanted to write a kind of something that looked at the art history and how breastfeeding has been represented in art over time. That was kind of the initial idea for the book. And um, and I read a book by Professor Amy Brown, who is a social scientist and has done a lot of work around breastfeeding. And that kind of introduced me to some of the kind of social history around breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Um, so ideas about wet nursing and, and things like that. So I knew that there was there was work out there looking at the history of of breastfeeding but nothing but some nothing that had kind of really looked at the art and the culture mm. in a very kind of yeah in a very sort of um not yeah in a very kind of comprehensive like really kind of um accessible way that mixed in memoir as well um and so i knew that i i kind of wanted to explore this through the art and then I started writing about my own experience kind of for myself to try and mm. figure out what was going on for me, kind of like writing a diary or something. Um, and I spoke to a friend of mine who works at The Welcome and she said, oh, you should pitch this to The Welcome because that's the kind of stuff that we like to publish. Yeah. So I pitched it to them and so I wrote an essay for Welcome that drew, it was very kind of personal essay um uh, but I pulled in some of the historical stuff I pulled in the nipple shields and the bottles and these histories and that was kind of the basis and the reaction I got from that I mean I'd already started working on a proposal for the book but even just talking to people about the idea Mm. suddenly people women every time I said I might write a book about this kind of you know mums groups or something and people were like oh yeah like because this happened to me or that happened to you know Mm. um and so I knew that there was an appetite for these conversations, mm. but there was no kind of space for these conversations. Um, uh, and so, um, so yeah, so I, I kind of wrote this piece for The Welcome. I started writing the book proposal. I started doing snatches of research, like literally in kind of, um, you know, nap time, feeding yeah. time. Um, when my son was old enough to sit, 
unaided but couldn't move <laughs> and he liked to just pull all his books Ooh, off the bookshelf like and read sweet, through them. Sweet time. <laughs> it would give me 15 minutes when he was just reading all of his books off the shelf um, and I could sit down and really quickly like yeah. go into a digital archive thank god for digital archives um or like <laughs> write a little something and so it was all done in these little snatches of time and um and after the welcome essay came out I already had kind of you know, some of the research and, and bits written. But the response to that made me go, okay, I, I need to work this into a book mm. proposal. I also had this fearlessness that I hadn't had before having a child. My mm. perspective shifted. I was suddenly very aware of the fact that I was going to die <laughs> at mm-hmm. some point. <laughs> so time shifted. Um, but also I just felt less scared. I always wanted to write um, more creatively and I always have written more creatively but never shared that or not since I was a teenager um, and I suddenly felt fearless I was like if I can give birth and raise this child and get through this then I can cope with you know I can cope with putting my you know I can be vulnerable in my yeah. work in my writing and put it out there um, so I worked up a proposal it was going to be the book was going to be so comprehensive in my head I was like I'm going to write about every facet of breastfeeding across history and culture um and sent it out to agents and thinking I'm not going to hear anything um and very quickly had several agents going yeah there's something needs to be written about this it's why why is there not a kind of memoir cultural history on on this facet of Mm. motherhood because it's so so vital so historically interesting. Um, and then worked with my uh agent, Joe Unwin, who is fantastic, and who really got the project right from right from the beginning. Um so during the kind of summer of 2020, I was working on kind of refining the proposal um with Joe. Um trying to re- doing research was very, very different to how I imagined because obviously everything was closed. We were in mm, lockdown. It was course, very different. Yeah. Um, my maternity leave basically segued into lockdown. So the the research nice. and writing process continued to be very, very fragmented. Um, and I think that kind of comes across in the book of like, I'm snatching bits from here and here and then weaving them together because I had no time to do any like in-depth research. And, you know, all the curators were on furlough, so I couldn't talk to any, you know. Um Oh gosh, even the curators being on furlough, of course they would have been because all of the museums and galleries were closed. Of course. Yeah. Goodness. I hadn't even yeah. added in that extra huge challenge. Yeah. And even when they reopened, um, they reopened, but they weren't opening their kind of their their yeah, the archives, archives or their object yeah. handling rooms or any yeah. of that stuff where you could go and go and actually handle stuff. So I could go and see stuff that was on display, but everything else was was closed. So in that sense, the book was, diff- you know, had to change in terms of what what yeah. materials I had and finding digitized resources and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, my my we worked on the proposal um, that got sent out, and then the book went to auction. And again, that was really really surprising um, mm. because, as I said before, I was like, "Who's going to want to read a whole book about breast milk? You know, is anyone going to get this?" Mm. Um, but people want to read it. But <laughs> I can yeah, I mean as soon as it as soon as I became aware of it, I was immediately like, ooh. Um yeah, no, I I can it doesn't surprise me at all actually that it went to auction. But it's because it's just mm. like 
it's it's so rich it's such a rich thing and also mm-hmm. you have such an interesting perspective on it that combination of the personal and the academic background that you have but you're not coming at the coming at it from a medical perspective at all mm. um which is really refreshing yeah yeah and i i really didn't want to kind of i didn't want women to feel feel like i was sort of pushing for one thing over another mm-hmm. like i'm not trying to encourage people to breastfeed if it's not you know if it's not right i'm not saying if you haven't breastfed you know you, you've made the wrong choice or anything you know i wanted to think i wanted to i wanted it to be kind of generative i wanted mm. it to like my editor told me recently you know it, it probably opens out more questions than it answers mm. um and i think the end product does and i don't think that was my intention at the beginning and certainly my editor spent you know a lot of time going it doesn't have to be completely comprehensive you don't have to include everything that you find about breastfeeding <laughs> um because that's that's just you know i i i'm a completist and mm. um uh and uh i have adhd and i worry that it's not going to be perfect and that someone's mm. going to come and say you know so i, I could have kept researching it forever and yeah. my editor was very kind of you know thank you, goodness you for editors <laughs> thank god i love being edited i love working <laughs> with editors um they're brilliant so yeah she, she was very you know very helpful in that regard but also i think yeah i think the fact that it I wanted it to open out more questions and to get us to think differently about the experience, you know, of, of, of our bodies. Um, and, and, and also to try and connect it to bigger questions, bigger feminist questions, yeah. because it's related to that as well. I think Absolutely. it's, it's so strange that we talk about public breastfeeding, but we don't acknowledge the fact that people who are feeding, they're breastfeeding in public, um, are, more often than not women and who have gone through um, a whole lifetime of being catcalled of being you know at best uh, you know at worst you know violently yeah. assaulted in public spaces yeah. um public spaces are not comfortable for women um but then we don't hear about that when we're talking about mothering in public spaces it's almost yeah. as if there's a there's a cut off you know there's a before and after and it's not it's a continuum yeah. um and so I wanted to try and to try and kind of bridge bridge some of those conversations as well something I'm really interested in is um you know lots of academics go from academic writing to writing um traditionally published nonfiction, which is for a wider audience than an academic audience let's say and it's quite a different style of writing did you find it easy and enjoyable and did you just dive straight into the personal or did it take a while for you to allow yourself to properly be on the page? Because, you know, for the listeners, this is a very intimate book in lots of ways. You mm. talk about your own experience in a really intimate way, um, but it's also incredibly rigorously researched and you get that combination so beautifully. But I know for from talking to other academic writers, that can really go against your academic training and and can be a little bit of a block sometimes when people switch from writing in one style to writing another. How did you find that process? I didn't actually find it difficult. Um, I mean, there was a lot, you know, going going to, to such points of vulnerability was quite hard sometimes. And there was stuff I cut out because I was very aware that and I think this is a broader question for kind of memoir and, and life mm. writing. I was very aware that this was not only my experience. That mm. One day, maybe, probably not, but one day my child might read this. Yeah. Um, 
and you know my family are going to read this so there was bits that I did take out Mm. um but it was more for that reason rather than not being able you know I think what I found tricky and again thank god for editors um was was the change in voice Mm. so from moving from a very academic way of writing because you're trained to write in a certain way um moving you know how do you how do you marry the two together so that you're going from this very kind of personal um uh you know trying to trying to be more literary (laughs) trying to be more creative um and then moving between that and then the kind of now I'm going to do some well-researched history you know how do you marry those two so that was Mm -hmm. that was I think that was the greater challenge was more the the technicality and the craft Mm -hmm. of it I think one of the reasons I found kind of positioning myself within the text um, less daunting was that's kind of my academic training. Mm. So um, so thinking about subject position Mm. always, thinking, you know, I'm very interested in phenomenology. And so it's all about your subject position. Who who's the who's the viewer looking at the object? Um, Where do you place yourself? So I've never really kind of even with my kind of dissertation um you you know in the in the introduction I situate myself who am I in this context what was my kind of uh uh kind of my my very kind of visceral experience with with these temples that I was writing about um and I that comes very much from my academic training um Mm. you know and from reading people like Derrida and and that that kind of thing and and yeah. so so I think there there is a space now in in more academic writing where you can bring in the personal and I'm very interested in kind of auto ethnography and auto theory and those kind of ideas which which you know which isn't about this kind of objective you know yeah voice outside I'm yeah yeah so I think that's maybe that's why I found it slightly easier yeah yeah oh it's so interesting um it's it's such an interesting book and i personally love that combination of kind of rigorous research and personal access to a story you know that personal within the the wider kind of political socio-political and it actually reminded me i don't know if you've read um jenny odell's how to do nothing have you read that book no no it reminded me of it a lot actually in i can't remember her exact background it is academic as well but I think it's more, um, it might be art. She is, a, I think she is a cultural historian as well. And she writes about mm. how to do, like about the idea of doing nothing within a kind of mm. <laughs> cultural and historical point of view. And, and it's similarly weaves in um, the, the political, the cultural and the personal um, throughout that entire book in, in such a kind of um, engaging um, way that that helps you put your own experience within a wider context in such a beautiful way. It really reminded me of that. Um, it's one of my favorite nonfiction books, actually. It's I would highly recommend. Okay, I've made a note. I've made and, a note. Um, but yeah, it's um, it's it's such an, in, an interesting, uh, enjoyable reader experience. Um, and such a so if anyone is thinking, oh gosh, is it really academic? I don't know if it's me. It is such an enjoyable reading experience um, because you do weave those two things together so beautifully in a way mm. that makes me as a reader feel very connected to all these ideas in history and this art, which was really mm. just so interesting. But um, I just wanted to sort of look ahead to your to the work you're doing in the future. I saw that you're co-editing your next book. Are you allowed to talk about that at all? Are you not allowed to talk? Is it not announced yet? Co-editing? No. 
Oh no, that book's out. I think. Oh, is it yeah. out? Oh, okay. So I, I'm just co. Yeah. Yeah, so I've just co-edited an issue. I've just co-edited an issue, and self we we sort of set up a publishing press to self-publish it. So I was go I was going through two publishing experiences simultaneously that were very very different. Um, So that book is called Asia Art Activism. Um, Asia Art Activism are a London-based collective network um, of of artists, academics, researchers, curators who are interested in questions of Asia and activism uh, and the intersections of those. Um, It was co-founded by a friend of mine, Annie Kwan, who's a curator um, and an academic. And um, I'm I'm part of the network, but not a kind of central member, partly because they started just as I was having my baby. So it kind of ruled out, you know, going and getting involved in all of this stuff. But um, they wanted to to sort of um, use kind of, kind of coming out of the pandemic and lots of questions that that raised about Asianness mm. um, uh, and and um, they wanted to kind of use that moment to kind of reflect back on what they'd done and kind of put themselves in a kind of historical um, context. And so Annie asked if I would co-edit that with her. Um, so yeah, so that is also now out. Um, and that explores lots of questions of kind of diaspora and um, Asian communities in the UK, um, race poli- global race politics, and of course, art. And there's lots of lovely visuals in it as well. Um, Amazing. But- I will put links to both of the books in the show notes. I'm going to check that out. That sounds really brilliant. It's been so wonderful to chat with you about this incredible book. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say this podcast kept me company on solo writing retreats um, <gasps> while I was working on this book. And um, it was lovely to hear the voice of writers um, while I was wrangling with my own manuscript. So thank you for having me. Oh, that is so brilliant to hear. That's like the whole point of doing a podcast and doing all the work is like just this idea of, you know, we all kind of work in isolation a lot of mm-hmm. the time. And the idea that you just it's like a touchstone to kind of keep remembering that there are lots of us out there plugging away. (laughs) Just like parenthood. (laughs) Just like parenthood. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. 